The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. Shauna Swan. She is one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists and a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. She is also the author of a new book that we are going to be discussing today titled Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Welcome, Dr. Swan. Thank you so much for having me on. Glad to be here, Melissa. Well, I want to first start our conversation by asking you, how did you become interested in reproductive health? I think the big push came when I was began my work at the California Department of Health Services, and there was a complaint, a concern from a community that was living in Santa Clara, and a woman in a small neighborhood did a count and found that there were more miscarriages and birth defects than people were expecting. And she wondered about that, and then it turned out that that community was living very close to a contaminated well, a well that had been contaminated with solvents from the semiconductor plant that was right there. So that began a series of investigations, and we did look at the rates of miscarriage and birth defects in relation to the water contamination, and that led to lots of changes and my interest in reproductive health. What a tragic situation for her and her neighbors, and how lucky, though, that she was able to find you and set off this cascade of research. Now, in your book, it says that in 2017, you specifically set off with a team of researchers to complete a major study that found that over the previous four decades, sperm levels among men in Western countries had plummeted by more than 50%. And this was the study that sent shockwaves through the media world. It was picked up by multimedia outlets, and people started to pay attention. Do you think that your research, however, is reaching medical schools and researchers at the NIH? Well, my research is funded by the NIH, so they're certainly aware of it that way. And as for medical schools, unfortunately, uh, medical students are not taught very much about environmental health. They have a few lectures. They hear about the dangers of lead and of a couple of other chemicals, asbestos perhaps. But no, there's no program to teach environmental health in most medical schools, even to preventive medicine students who should be the ones perhaps best informed since they deal with prevention. Mm -hmm. 
And your book dives into the many reasons why we have seen a plummeting of sperm counts and fertility in general, as well as situations with female reproductive health like polycystic ovary syndrome and endometriosis. So we've got both male and females in this situation where we think everything is fine until it isn't. What do you want people to know about your past research to date in terms of where are the red flags of danger in our environment? So the red flags, which is a good way of putting it, should be attached to products in our home, in our lives, in our foods, products that have the ability to alter our body's natural hormones. And those have been called hormone disruptors or sometimes endocrine disruptors. And the reason that I want to highlight these is because hormones are so critical to reproductive health, and that's the area that I focus. But they also actually are critical to many other aspects of health, for example, neurodevelopment and thyroid development, immune function and on and on. In fact, our body runs on hormones. And so the myriad of chemicals in the environment that have ability to alter our body's natural hormones leaves us unprotected in a way, leaves us challenged in a way that affects our health. And for me, the place that I've looked hardest is in the reproductive system. Before you published the 2017 study, you had been actually at the University of Missouri in Columbia, where I'm based, and you did some research looking at men in two different locations. One was in rural central Missouri, and the other was urban Minneapolis. Tell me what that study showed you. Yeah. So that study, which was called the Study for Future Families, was actually a four-center study, but two of them were, as you say, in Missouri and Minneapolis. And it was actually between Missouri and Minneapolis that we saw the biggest contrast, the biggest difference in semen quality. So the bottom line is that men who were participating in our study, and I can tell you who those were, who lived in or around Columbia, Missouri, and came into the University of Missouri accompanying their pregnant partners, which is how we found them, they had half as many, only half as many moving sperm, modal sperm, compared to men in Minneapolis who came into a pregnancy center at the University of Minneapolis. So that contrast was really striking, 50% different. Same kind of man, same methods used exactly, and big differences. And then we went further to find out why. And was that because of their exposure to pesticides? Yes. So it wasn't obvious at first. We looked at a lot of things that could have been different. So was there different levels of smoking or alcohol or obesity, exercise, all these things can affect semen quality. But those weren't the things that were different. What was different was that central Missouri is agricultural. And we looked at the numbers of acres that were in farming around the University of Missouri where we recruited people and where they lived compared to the acreage in farming around the university center in Minneapolis, there was no comparison. So that said to us, aha, this may be the cause. And then we had the urine samples of a sample of men 
and we actually compared the levels of pesticides. And there was a big difference between Minneapolis and Missouri in the levels of several pesticides, significant differences. But perhaps the most dramatic finding was even among the Missouri men, when we looked at a sample who had very poor semen quality in all parameters, you know, the shape was wrong and they didn't move very well and they had bad count and bad volume, compared that to a group that was good to go on all parameters. And there was this huge difference in pesticide levels, particularly the atrazine was very different. Diazinon was very different. The thiazines, all of them, they were very different. So this was a pretty good wake-up call that these were playing a role in semen quality. Unfortunately, we didn't have money to measure that in everybody, but that was a good start. Yeah. And you write that it's not just individuals who are farmers. It's not just individuals who are living in these rural communities per se, but it's also people who are exterminators and gardeners and greenhouse workers and florists. Anybody that comes in contact with these pesticides that have been marketed largely as being safe. They're on the shelf. We just assume that they're safe, but actually they're not. And we have spoken about the active ingredients and the inert ingredients. And I think it's important for people to understand that, number one, when the EPA registers pesticides, that's not a guarantee of their safety. Pesticides are tested individually, not in synergistic amounts that we might experience in real life. And the inert ingredients are not tested. Why are the inerts important to know about? Well, the inert ingredients could definitely have their own toxicity. And when I was studying phthalates, which I did for many years, those are chemicals in plastics, they're plasticizers that are added to plastic to make them soft. They have another property, which is they increase absorption. And that's great. If you want to put that in a hand cream, that hand cream will go into your body. Not so great if you're worrying about getting phthalates into your skin. And in the same way, they're were in the past at least added to pesticides to increase absorption of the pesticide into the plant. So I got concerned not only for the active ingredients in the pesticides, but also for the inactive or the inert ingredients. So you've got four categories of endocrine disruptors that you really focus on in this book, phthalates, BPA, flame retardants, and pesticides. And you speak specifically about phthalates as being a compound that we find often as inert ingredients in pesticides, and that they don't only affect the fertility of men and women, but they also lower a fetus's exposure to testosterone. Tell me why that's important. That's important because during fetal development, the fetus, the male fetus in particular, requires enough testosterone at the right time to develop normally. And there's two developmental systems that are particularly sensitive to that. And one is the development of the reproductive system and one is the brain. And what I studied in the greatest depth was the development of the reproductive system and particularly the genitals of the boys. And the reason I did that is because prior to doing this study, which by the way, I did do in Columbia, Missouri, along with the other three centers in the study for future families. I heard about and spoke to the authors of 
a study which showed that rodents exposed prenatally to phthalates exhibit something which they had called the phthalate syndrome. And this is pretty dramatic because it's very unusual for a chemical to be given that name of it. That shows causation right there, phthalate syndrome. And they were able to produce in the laboratory this syndrome of effects on the male where the genitals are smaller. They're more likely to have genital birth defects. They have internal defects, which we couldn't actually look at in humans. And then they go on to have other reproductive problems, including with their fertility. So what I asked was, could that be happening in humans? Because we know that humans are exposed to these phthalates, the ones that they were giving these animals to produce the phthalate syndrome. And, you know, nobody had looked. So I set out to look for the human phthalate syndrome. And fortunately, in that study for future families, for which we had enrolled men who were married to pregnant women, we had the urine from both the man and the woman. We had stored the woman's urine. And so we were able to get that urine, send it to the Centers for Disease Control, analyze the levels of phthalates in the urine, And then we were able to bring the children in for an exam and look for the endpoints that had been altered in the rodents. So is that clear, that plan? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what we did. And what we found was, yes, indeed, the changes that the National Toxicology Program had seen in rodents and rats, we also saw in our children. Now, I should say in males, and we didn't see any changes in the females, but you wouldn't expect that because the female genital tract does not require testosterone to develop normally. So these boys were not weird. They didn't look strange. You wouldn't notice anything unless you took the calipers, which we took, and actually very carefully measured the entire genital region. And when you do that, you see statistically significant differences, which are related to how much phthalate, certain phthalates, particularly the ones that are known to lower testosterone, those phthalates were significantly related to these endpoints in the boys. And would you expect for those boys that were exposed to phthalates, would you expect to see some sperm quality and quantity decline as they enter reproductive age? That's what the animals study suggested. And we also had some evidence that one particular measure that was most sensitive, which is called the anal genital distance, that that measure was permanent. So just like you have your eye color for life, you know, various other physical features, that was a measure that stayed with you. So you, it got longer as you grew, but if you were short at the beginning, you're going to be short as an adult. And that measure When we looked at it in adult males, these were college students in Rochester, New York, we found that those that had a shorter measure, that is shortened perhaps by phthalates, we don't know, went on to have lower sperm counts. So we had a direct link from this measurement in a general distance to the sperm count of and quality of the men. And then another study showed that infertile men also had a shorter 
antigenal distance. So this marker, antigenal distance, turned out to be very useful because it told us something about how much testosterone was present in utero, and it told us how they were going to function as adults. And this whole path can be set off course by the mother's exposure to phthalates. Wow. Well, that is certainly a significant finding. We need to take one break because we're halfway through. And I just want to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Shauna Swan. She is one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists. She's a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. We are talking about her new book, It Is Disturbing, also empowering. It's a book that we need to know about. It's titled Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. And I thought it was ironic, I know you're based in New York City, that the sirens were going off as you're describing this research. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that we really do need to have some kind of warning siren going off to tell us that... This work is significant, and we need to be paying attention, much like climate change research. So you start out, you're saying your book reveals that fertility has dropped more than 50% over the past 50 years worldwide. In some parts of the world, 20-something women today are less fertile than their grandmothers were at 35. A man today has only half the number of sperm that his grandfather had. So we dove into phthalates, but I neglected to ask you, What exactly are phthalates and where do we find them besides in the inert ingredients and pesticides? So phthalates are so prevalent. They're hard to avoid. First of all, one major use is that they make plastic soft and flexible. So whenever you see soft plastic, the chances are good you're looking at phthalates. And they are also in personal care products. Like I mentioned, they are added to hand cream and and makeup to increase absorption. They're added to scent because they help retain scent. They're added to lipsticks and nail polish because they also retain color. And they're, they're everywhere. And what's interesting is that we can't really do much to avoid them. Yeah. Um, because they're not labeled. There's nothing, you're not going to see a phthalate label on anything. You might see some healthy products that say phthalate free, and I would believe that. But by the way, if they say BPA free, that's literally true. But people should be aware that there's a practice now of substitution where you take out BPA and replace it by something like BPF as in Frank, or BPS as in Sam. And you can still label the product as BPA-free, but it's got these bisphenols, which actually can do the same harm as the BPA. And that's also happening with the phthalates. We saw phthalates drop between the study for future families, which was in Missouri and elsewhere, and our second study, which was 10 years later, we saw a drop of the the most anti testosterone causing the anti-androgenic phthalate called GEHP. That dropped 50%, which was fabulous. But then another phthalate called DINP went up. It had been introduced and it also causes a lot of the same changes we saw associated with GEHP. 
So just a word of caution, these chemicals are not tested before they're put into our products. Right. Well, I think that this book is important not only for raising awareness about these compounds and the damage that they might be doing and are doing, but I think it's also important because you also have strategies to avoid these compounds, and we're going to dive into that. But I think it's important for us also to recognize that your book has been likened to Silent Spring by Rachel Carson and the similarities and the kinds of attacks that Rachel Carson had to experience, as you yourself did way back in the late 90s, when your research, as well as others, where you were looking at endocrine disruptors, you were calling alarm, and people were saying, oh, you're just a bunch of crybabies, and you're just a bunch of junk scientists. In fact, your name appeared on the Junk Science website. How do you navigate that kind of distrust and I guess you could say there would be fake news coming out about you when, when indeed you're, you're doing high-quality research. Well, I mean, nobody likes that, right? But in fact, it didn't interfere with my position in academia. It didn't interfere with my funding. So I'm very grateful for that. And I don't think it really harmed me, but I think it does harm the field because the more there are people who are not qualified speaking up for on the behalf of chemicals that are not safe, the more risk there is to the public. So I think the damage is not so much on a personal level, it's on a societal level. And as we know from many good books, like Doubt is Their Product and so on, right. uh, this, the playlist of instilling doubt to challenge good science, as was done with the tobacco wars, as done with climate change, is now happening with endocrine disruption. So we're kind of used to it, but it doesn't make it any easier to swallow because it's making it harder for people to learn the truth. Exactly. Well, you've got a great section on how we can protect ourselves and our families. And of course, those critical windows of vulnerability when do you like your audiences to be extremely aware of the products they use? Is it when you've got a, a woman who's entering childbearing age? What audiences do we need to target with this message? Well, the riskiest time is the fetal life. And so I think a couple that's considering having a baby or maybe they haven't thought about it, but they could have a baby, they're at risk of having a baby they have to be very careful and men should be aware that they can contribute as well as the pregnant woman to the exposure of the, the, the unborn child. So a man is producing sperm all the time, takes about 70 days. And so in the 70 days before he conceives the child, any exposure that he was privy to would, could have an effect on that unborn child. And a good example is a study from Denmark where they showed that men who were regular smokers and conceived a child, that male child had a 40% reduced sperm count. Mm. And that was a similar reduction to when the mother herself smoked during pregnancy. And by the way, if the man smoked, he also reduced his sperm, but only about 20%. And the other difference is that the changes that were put in place by the man's or woman's smoking were permanent, whereas the changes that occurred because of the man's smoking 
were reversible. So if he stopped smoking, he could improve his semen quality. Mm. So that says that the during early fetal life, there is the potential for damage that's lifelong. And by the way, we also know that this might affect future generations. And that's a little hard to get your head around. But an easy thing to remember is that there's the mother exposed. She's carrying a fetus. That fetus, for example, if it's a male, he's got the germ cells in his body that are going to go on and make the sperm later. And so when she's exposed, the fetus is exposed, and then those germ cells are exposed, right? So we've got now three generations impacted. And there are now quite a few animal studies that show that even subsequent generations are affected as well. Yeah, that's what's so frightening about this, is that even if you make changes today, which certainly are beneficial, we are still living with the consequences of our exposure. And of course, these compounds continue to be made and sold. And you've got some excellent tips. You talk about your yard, not using these lawn services that spray these chemicals, even though they tell us that they're safe. I have recently been looking for a sippy cup purchase. Mm. And I thought, you know, it's almost impossible to find something that isn't plastic. So I appreciated your section on food storage containers and assessing whether or not plastic containers are safe or not. And you say, look at those recycling codes. They give us a clue. And you say, for sure, you want to make sure that if you are going to buy plastic, that it's going to be numbers four, five, one, and two, and all the rest are bad for you. Right. Right. That's good to remember. The other thing that you talk about is really simple, and that is when you're choosing food for your family, if it's advertised on television, leave it because that's going to be processed and packaged, likely in plastic, and will have migratory compounds. Is there anything else you want to say about those recommendations? I think I'd like to say that there's a lot more and people should read the book (laughs) because we have chapters and chapters on this. And it's easy to say a few things, but I think people will understand better and also be more likely to make changes if they understand the reasons for these changes. Right. And then there are also policy actions. And you've got some great organizations listed in the back of the book where we can get involved because really, to me, You know, we can only do so much as individual citizens. We really do need policy change. And it's tough in a capitalistic society where if you threaten any kind of economic gain, regardless of public health impact, we come up against brick walls. Yes, it's a struggle, but I think it's worth it's a struggle worth taking and worth getting engaged in because otherwise this sperm count is just going down and down and down. We have evidence from our data that even in recent years, the slope hasn't slowed down. So, and if you project that line and ask, when does it hit zero? That's 2045. So that's just one generation away. Yeah. The clock is ticking. Yeah. Do you have one last send off message in the final seconds remaining? Well, thank you for your, you know, program and the ability to talk on it and and the fact that you're worrying about pesticides and helping to keep people healthy. Thank you for that. Absolutely. And I'm glad that siren went off again. It's really a perfect (laughs) way to say pay attention. 
We need to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Shauna Swan. She is one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists, professor at Mount Sinai in New York City. And I want to just once again enforce the importance of this book titled Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Impairing the Future of the Human Race. Thank you so much, Dr. Swan, for your time today. Thank you, Melissa. Melissa.